Hey guys, before getting into the show, I've got something for learning anatomy. Let's be honest, it's painful learning it. Learning what nerve goes through what and where what muscle attaches to, it can sometimes take forever to learn. So let's talk KenHub. Number one, they've got thousands of anatomy illustrations and articles. Number two, they've got videos by genuine anatomy experts with speed controls, captions and transcripts giving you complete control to jump and focus where you want. Basically, you get control over what you want to learn and in the way you want. And finally, three, quizzes. The best way to test yourself and help retention of knowledge. But wait, it doesn't end there because you can create your own quizzes to match your goals. KenHub haven't left any stone unturned. There's a 10% discount code linked in the description below. Check them out. Now let's head back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another amazing guest. We have with us Dr. Harriet Tracy, who is a medical doctor, the co-founder of Beyond BMI. She's got close to a decade of clinical experience, has worked in five different healthcare systems, which we need to talk about. But what's also interesting is you've done something completely different and you've got real genuine experience with UX, design, product management, things that are on the opposite end of the spectrum for a medical doctor. Um, so it's a massive pleasure having you on the show today, Harriet. How are you? Welcome to the show. Good, thanks, guys. Really, really delighted to be on. Um, looking forward to today's chat. No, definitely. Amazing. So you're doing wonderful things. You've co-founded Beyond BMI, um, and I want to kind of talk about that deeply. But before we go into that, I really want to take it all the way back to the very beginning, a young Harriet who's embarking on this journey to kind of go and become a doctor. Tell us a bit more about that, the decision and the motivations to pursue a career in medicine. So, I mean, to be honest, it, it didn't start with a desire to do medicine. It started with a desire actually to do veterinary. Um, oh, wow. And I spent, um, went off and did work experience for vet and, and I watched these cows getting, um, getting neutered. And I was like, not for me. <laughs> um, so that kind of ended that. But I kind of dug deep into like, well, what was even motivating me to want to be a vet? And it was like, I ultimately always had this desire to do something outside of myself, something that was more mm. than just about like a personal pursuit or a personal d desire. And medicine just felt like it was going to be that. So I remember yeah. writing my, um, my personal statement and, you know, you get to the bottom and it's like, you know, you sign off with something cheesy, but it, 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 felt real and it was real to me at the time. And I was like, I just want to do something that is bigger than me. Mm -hmm. And I was never particularly, um, I wouldn't say I was, I was the most academic person. Now some people would disagree with that, but I, I certainly, things didn't come easy to me in school. I wasn't like, you know, I remember standing um, outside of certain classes and people would be able to rope learn off stuff and me going, I can't do that. Like that's not how my brain works. So I mm. always knew I was going to have to grasp. Like mm. I, I knew from a young age that my superpower was going to be that I would outwork other people because it wasn't mm. going to come naturally to me. And once I accepted that, it was like, right, let me, you know, let's go. So, you know, one example is I remember in um, junior cert, which is like GCSEs for you guys, um, mm. I got a D in French and I was told you're no good at languages. I wouldn't take it for your A-levels, which in Ireland is leaving cert. And I just thought, nah. No, I'm not bad at French. I just got taught badly. I just don't learn the way you teach. And what I did was I signed up for as an au pair, basically. So for two summers, I went to France on my own, looked after, um, you know, kind of 
that, that kind of thing in, 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 in mm. and all my friends at the time were, were going off to like Montpellier to do like surfing lessons and here's me oh, wow. living in some <laughs> house. house. Yeah. And I came back and sat my leaving cert and I got an A1, which is above oh, 90%. Wow. And, you know, I, I suppose that, that to me was, it, it was a bit of a, I, I'm definitely someone who's motivated by stick and carrot. Like, mm. you know, um, I, I have a desire to go somewhere, but I also love it when people doubt me because that's yeah. me. it just drives me. Um, yeah. yeah. So I suppose bringing that back to medicine, it was like, I knew people didn't think I'd necessarily get medicine, but I was like, oh, I'm going to do it. And mm-hmm. it was tough, but I scraped my way in. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I actually ended up in Nottingham. Um, Amazing. So really cool medical school. Um, was lot was dying to get out of Ireland at the time because I think you, I suppose you outgrow certain places and you want something new. And I, I ended up in Nottingham and I got, um, we had a, a intercalated degree. So it was like, you got your, your, your BMED sci, which is your, um, yeah. Under, um, yeah. And you also got the, the degree in medicine and that, that was great. Um, and I was all kind of riled up and, 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 and ready to go out into the world and, and be a doctor. And then I landed in my F1 job and that was based out of a really small little hospital just outside of Bristol. Um, I won't go into exactly the name of the hospital, but it was small. It was probably 90% staffed by locums. So it was a pretty rough place to start because there just wasn't yeah. continuity of care there and there just wasn't the um, the culture in the place. And yeah. I remember like early on um, coming across a, a lot of issues with the hospital. Like there was, you know, vacutainers were never stacked properly and, um you know, it was never proper staffing, all that kind of stuff. And, and I decided to bring in this um, telephone reporting line so that mm. I could increase the uh, access to reporting for doctors because I felt we needed to be reporting a little bit more. And I brought in the system as a quality improvement project. So it was basically like an anonymous telephone line. And you'd ring in, you'd say anything, whether it was trivial, like there's not enough vacutainers on the ward, all the way up to like something more serious, like the, the resource trolley doesn't have defibrillators on it. Mm. And what happened was we saw an uptake of 500% oh, in wow. the number of reports that doctors put in because it was obviously easier and it was simpler and it was, you know, anonymous. And we were delighted. And within two weeks of, of running this project, the Quality Improvement Hub shut it down. And oh, wow. the reason they shut it down was because they said they didn't have the staff to man it. And... There was, it was obviously, you know, one of those situations where once you know about something, you have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. They were obviously concerned that they were knowing too much. Yeah. And mm. I was just like, eat it. I was like, oh my God, like how, <laughs> is you know? And I think that was probably my first snap back into reality about where, like what the system was actually like. Yeah. And mm. the level of commitment to long-term change in these systems. So. I ended up doing like everybody did, nothing, nothing um, magical, but ended up going to Australia for, for two years, just kind of wanted to try a different health system. Oh, wow. And um, while I was there, I still had that kind of niggling feeling that I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I was starting to look at new, new systems, new um, systems in healthcare, and I found out about value-based healthcare. Hmm. And value-based healthcare, I suppose you probably heard about it, but it's essentially aligning financial incentives yeah. to end up with better outcomes for patients because we're all aligned to that as their outcome. So it's not transactional, it's not fee for service. So I reached out to one of the CEOs 
who ran one of these companies. And I remember writing something silly in an email like, hi, my name is Dr. Harry Tracy and I'm a 27-year-old disgruntled doctor. And, <laughs> and, and he was so lovely, second-generation Sri Lankan guy. Yeah. Um, mm. And he'd set up this company that has 49 practices across the States. The name of the oh, company wow. is Iora Health. And um, he said, look, come over and have a look and, and see what we're doing over here. So handed in my job notice, um, packed up my bags, and off I went for six weeks across the States from Ohio down to Dartmouth and Boston and spent some time with um, Rashika, the, the CEO, in his um, in his HQ in Boston. So I watched him as he hired people. I watched how he interacted with staff, his vision, all that kind of stuff. And I was just blown away by it. I was like, wow, this is innovation. I felt like I'd mm. literally been transported 10 years into the future of healthcare. Um, mm. The way they treated patients, the multidisciplinary teams that they had within a primary care setting. Um, they had behavioral psychologists, they had health coaches, they had everything you could imagine you'd want in your toolkit mm. yeah. as a provider. And it was working, the model, the financial model was working. And that was another pivotal moment where I was like, that's it, I wanna do something. And I'll never ever forget him, him telling me, you will never change it from the inside. Yeah. And that to me was like, it just validated how I felt already, which was like, I could break my heart trying to change the health system by grinding, but that's mm. just not gonna work. And that's a, that's a problem of strategy for me as a person. So I left, um, I left the States after a couple of weeks and off I went back home. So I hadn't lived in Ireland at that point for like 10 years, came back into Ireland and I was like pumped. And I was like, right, yeah. that's it. I'm setting up value-based healthcare. And off I went and I signed up to this like um, innovators kind of garage thing. It was, it was like a six week program where you go through your business model and you get business advice. And I think that was brilliant because mm -hmm. it completely squashed the idea out of me. Like it was far too, I don't want to say ambitious, but like it wasn't thought through. I hadn't really understood the business model behind it, particularly in Ireland, how it would work. Mm. I didn't network yet. So that was a really good experience for me. And I think what that did was it made me realize that, yeah, I'm a doctor, mm. but that doesn't make me a business person. Yeah. Mm. So there was like this realization of I have a skills gap. And after that point, I decided, right, okay, I need to break, I need, I need to bridge this gap. Mm. So I looked at different masters. I looked at a master's in public health. I thought maybe that would help me understand health systems, but ultimately it's probably too academic. I thought about um, a mass, an MBA, and I got mm. accepted onto an MBA, but I thought that would be great if I'm running a business, but it won't help me start a business. Um, and then I came across this master's, which is kind of outside of Dublin in a random little university and it was called um, a master's in design innovation. And mm. design innovation is all about design thinking principles, UX, ethno ethnographic research, human-centered design. It's really trying to uncover unmet needs and problems and mm. tease them out so that you, you actually settled on the right problem to solve. So off I went down and I met such a cool bunch of people down there. Like everyone came back, came from different backgrounds, the motor yeah. industry, accounting, um, graphic design. There was not a sign or sight of another doctor or nurse because <laughs> it was like I needed the exposure to different people at that point. Mm. Um, and during that master's, I um, worked on a couple of projects with this this guy called Peter and we kind of worked really well together. And at the end of the master's, we had to pick a dissertation. So 
as part of that dissertation, I chose to do, I, I knew I wanted to do something to do with chronic disease. I knew I wanted to do something to do with a big problem that needed to be solved. Mm. So we looked into type 2 diabetes and the kind of the problems that were facing that. And we came up with a solution. So, so sorry, as part of our ethnographic research, we spent time with pharmaceutical companies, um, insurance companies. Um, we went out to an obesity um, tertiary centre and spent mm. time talking to people living with the disease of obesity and, and all that. And during that time, one of the nurses out there said to us, the, the biggest problem she sees is that men are absent in the healthcare system mm-hmm. for about 20 to 30 years of their life. Oh, wow. And she said they don't have any natural touch points with healthcare and they're a bit like ostriches. They put their head in the sand. Yeah. So that really kind of hit us and we thought, God, there must be an opportunity here for, you know, for men's health solution. Mm. And that set us off in this direction of blood brothers, which you've never heard of because it doesn't exist anymore, but it's where it started. And we came up with this idea called Blood Brothers. Okay. Um, I'm actually going to go and see the play soon enough because okay. it said to me so many times that Blood Brothers is actually a play. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So came up with that and, and we brought that idea then to Enterprise Ireland. So I don't know what the equivalent is in the UK, but Enterprise Ireland is like the state funded body. They, they, they essentially um, support any companies that have export potential. Mm-hmm. Um, they're probably the largest funder in the whole of Ireland. Like they're, they're huge. And um, we went to Enterprise Ireland and we said, look, we've got this idea. Will you support us? And after about nine months of grants, like going back and forth on, on a grant application, which was mm. kind of new to me, um, we managed to secure 497000 Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of money. Um, and then COVID hit. Oh. And that was really challenging because I think COVID was great for digital health companies. They yeah. were established, but not so good for people who were just getting out of the box. And that was us. Yeah. So I'd never managed a tech team. I'd never um, developed a product before. I'd never, mm. you know, everything was new. And not being able to network, not being able to build that team properly, I just think had a big, big kind of impact on us. But anyway, we went through lots of iterations. And I'd say we worked on that for about a year, maybe 15 months. And after that, after that period of time, we went into the market and we were we were trying to sell this product to men's health mm. employers. So we were targeting the likes of large construction companies and large security companies, which had like a predominant male workforce. And it went from that kind of, and this is for anybody who knows about traction and what traction looks and feels like, because I had no idea at the time. It was like, we start off by saying, oh, here, let's do a paid trial. And then it was like, okay, unpaid trial. <laughs> it was like, I'll pay you to do a trial. And none of it was really sticking. And I was like, okay. We don't have traction. Like this is not a big mm. problem that we're trying to solve. So it was essentially we we're trying to solve, like um, trying to offer direct consumer blood testing. So we were trying to get men yeah. to, to test for, test for diabetes. And so long story short, is that was about a year ago. Yeah. And I sat down at Christmas. I'd, I'd spoken to a mentor at the time, and I said, "Look, I don't think we have a business." And he said, "Take take some time off Christmas." And, and just think about it and, and give yourself a bit of space. And that was probably the best advice I'd ever gotten because you can get so into something. And so yeah. you lo- it's a bit like being a doctor, isn't it? Where you're like, you know, you're, you're running a resource situ- situation and you become task orientated and you lose spatial and situational awareness. And that's just a bad place to be. So I think that kind of happened a little bit. And I needed that distance. Mm-hmm. At the end of Christmas, I went, I kind of 
looked back over all the initial insights that we had and, and back to the time we'd spent in the obesity clinics. And I said to my co-founder at the time, Peter, I was like, I think we missed, like we had the right insight, but we had the wrong application. Mm. So actually what we should be doing is developing a virtual obesity clinic. Yeah. And mm. that's where Beyond BMI came from. So no. we, we, we kind of went back to the drawing board and things just kind of flowed from there. It was like, you know, we'd learned so much. We've made so many mistakes with tech and we've made so much, so many mistakes with traction that like you still make them. Yeah. <laughs> but you make them quicker. Yeah. Them quicker. Mm. So we, um, we started to build out a little bit of a team there. We got, you know, dietitians who were experts in obesity involved. We got a health coach who's an expert in health coaching involved. And mm. around, July of last year, the money dried up. So it was like, yeah. we, need to get, we need to get money in. Um, and we went out fundraising. And thankfully, within about three to four months, we managed to secure 525000 from high net worth individuals who were just interested in this space. And it was becoming so topical as well. Like, yeah. you, you couldn't yeah. open the newspaper the weekend without something about obesity. No, it's definitely yeah. a, a, a big problem. Just congratulations on, on the race. Just before we move on, you kind of set the tone nicely. Just taking a step back, tell us the value of having a mentor who you can go to and kind of get advice from um, and the importance of having someone like that. And tell us how you're feeling in that Christmas period when you realised things weren't working, you know, you probably weren't in the best of moods. How did you come out of it and go on to do something? Because a lot of people, that would be a point where they give up and go back to the day job. Wow, two two pretty good questions there. I mean, the one on the mentor is is a complex question because mm. we all kind of have an idea what a good mentor would look like. You know, someone who's supportive, somebody who is honest. Like, I think firm but fair is probably yeah. the best the best kind of mentor. Um, but also someone who's invested, and that's key. It's like you will get bountiful amounts of, of of advice. And I've been told so many times, and thankfully I was was, you know advisors that ask you for equity straight up or ask you for something like that they're, they're not they're not worth their weight at all because mm -hmm. they, they they have not shown value yet it's like it's like someone sticking a wedding ring on your finger on day one you know mm -hmm. it's not normal and yet we think it's normal in business because we feel almost in you know inferior or that yeah. like, you know god they're giving me my time but it's like the real ones the ones that stick around like are like my one of my best mentors um is actually our chairman now mm. John Purdy, and he worked with us for like a year oh wow before he asked for anything and when he did it was like yeah no brainer. this is no brainer you know and then he subsequently mm. even invested as well so he put money into this and so he put his money where his mouth is mm. and i was just lucky i was i want to say there was some stroke of genius there that like it's not guys it's network it's network yeah. it's network it's network and it's like mm. you just need to be out there talking to people, know people, and you know, serendipity plays into it. Sadly, <laughs> no, no, definitely. I want to dive deep into something that you said, which um, which is a real interest point for me, and that's when you said, "My superpower is that I will work my socks off. I will work hard." And whether you're a doctor in the clinical arena or in the entrepreneurship field, the truth of the matter is, a lot of hard work goes into it. Um, I just want you to talk a little bit about that, about the, the reality of it all, because sometimes it appears like it's all podcast shows, it's all tech crunch news and being in the Silicon Valley sort of news outlets, right? T 
tell us a little bit about behind the scenes about COVID time when it hit you and you had to secure funds and then you had to assess the business, go through the problems, talk to users. Tell us what it was like behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, that's super question again, because it's like, you're so right. Like there's so much chat about the grind and how cool it is to work hard, but it's like working <laughs> hard without strategy is just painful. Like mm. it, it's painful. And I think you sometimes know it when it's happening. It's like, you kind of go like, I'm putting in all these hours, I'm doing all this, but something's not happening for me. And mm. you know, the other side is like having a strategy, but not being willing to work. So really you kind of have to have both. Um, and I also think I'm a big believer in the double-edged sword. So like, you know, I think every character trait is a double-edged sword. It, it mm. is a good side to it and there's a bad side to it. So it's like, you know, I am willing to work, but like, do I overwork? Do yeah. I mismanage my time? Probably. Mm. Do I know that? Am I aware of that? Am I trying to work on that weakness of my trait? Yes, I am. Um, but it's like, yeah, it's um, nothing is as perfect as it looks. And I would say as well, another thing is like, I decided to go into kind of like explore this entrepreneurial side of things when I was around 27. And yeah, first of all, I'm going to point out it's different being a woman. And I'm not like super feminist, I'm not any of those things, but I I feel it's different as a woman because we do have a different biological time clock. And I just was aware of that. And I was like, if I don't do this now, I'm hardly gonna wake up at like 37 and go, hey, I'm gonna start a business. It's like, it's just not gonna happen. Mm. And so I was kind of playing around with my own timelines a little bit. And I still am like, mm. I mean, I'm 33 now and I'm like, no, sorry, Jesus, I'm adding years. I'm 32 <laughs> and, um, I'm I'm gonna get my eggs frozen because I am I am thinking about those things and you know I think you have to think about exposure to risk and and how willing you are to do that because I still look at pals of mine who I went to med school with and they're GPs now and they have a beautiful house and the dog and the first child and all those things and I just have to remind myself I'm on a different journey yeah um, I'm. I've got, I've got, got different things I want to say on my deathbed. And that's probably what's my main motivation is like, mm. I know that I want to say that I lived courageously. And that to me looks like pursuing business and pursuing this, yeah. this side of myself. Um, now that's not what courage means to everybody. And I think we should all be clear about that. Cause it's like, there's a lot of like, you know, oh, you know, this is more important than that. Mm. You know, it's not true. It's like if your dream is to have three children in a suburban area, like that is your dream. And it's like, you know, don't don't hate on anybody else for having a different dream. But no. for me, it's about like, can I live courageously? Do I know that I made the right decision, not the easy decision? And I think that's probably what guides me. Like, you know, so Amazing. yeah, I don't know if I <laughs> no. No. I think that that's, you answered the, the question we were going to ask and, and you answered it very well when sincerely was when you are a medic turned entrepreneur and you kind of jumps off the treadmill when you're seeing your, your colleagues and your friends become consultants, become GPs, like I said, get the house, get the kids, get the car, and you're still grafting, you're still kind of, you know, speaking to users and fundraising. You do feel like, did I make a mistake? What am I doing? Yeah. But you, you you have such a strong motivator and, and it's having the courage to understand what makes you tick, what makes you happy, what gives you fulfillment. And, and we know it's not the same for everyone. 
the, the question I wanted to ask was, when you're a grafter, when you work hard and you're willing to work harder than everyone else in the room, and you're so passionate about an idea, at what stage when you re- can you kind of take a step back and realize it's not working, let me, let me stop doing what I'm doing and pivot? Because the problem is when you're building a, build, a business, sometimes you just have to stay in the game long enough to yeah. actually stay your time to shine, right? But at the same time, you can't be building something without strategy or building something and no one really wants it. You are a perfect example of having been in that situation for other budding entrepreneurs. At what stage do you like, hey, you know what? I'm going to take a step back. This isn't working. We need to hit the drawing board again. It's a really, really hard question, isn't it? Like, I, I think where possible, try and be as data-driven as you can. It's like data-driven with intuition. So like data-driven would be, for example, what's the macro environment doing? Like, you know, if you're going for, if you want to go into the oil and gas industry and it's like the trend for, <laughs> you know, renewables, it's like you're probably not the wrong strategy, you know? Um, mm. So I think that, and like when I, when I looked at, we'll say, for example, the problem with a, a type, like, I mean, that was why I started with type 2 diabetes. Cause it was like, it's a big problem. People are willing to pay to solve it and it has an, an impact on people's lives. So it was like, it felt like a good area to be, to be in. And similar with obesity, it's like, it's a big problem. It's a growing problem. It's not going anywhere. Um, it hasn't been solved. And it's also a very emotive problem. Yeah. Always good. Because what's the number one thing? The pain has to be big enough that people want to do something to change it. And if people yeah. don't feel pain, they will not do something. They will not buy your product. They will not do your service. They will not take your medical advice. Yeah. Um, like I, I worked in, I, and I still work in an ED, um, you know, as, as a locum. But like 95% of presentations are what? Presentations around pain. Mm. So mm. I think that's a big thing is asking, honestly, is this a painful situation that someone's willing to pay for to solve? And if it's not, then you're probably not in the right space or you're probably not solving the right problem, at least anyway. So mm. how do you find that out? Again, data, talk to people, get out there and, mm. and interview them and interview them using open-ended questions. Like don't go out and look for the information you want to find. Like look for the truth you know and you only mm. get the truth and i think we're all skilled as doctors in you know um communication skills and i think you should leverage them as much as you can like ask those open-ended questions um don't mm. use leading questions it's all the same stuff you know except in a business setting harriet so when you were going through that pivot right so when you were looking at your data right what what do you have what sort of mindset uh, do you have to look at it like because the way i can see it is that some people will see that I've got no traction, it's failed, end of story. Um, I'm now going to build a new business. Whereas you looked into your data and you found something sitting there and you went, no, it's because we just need to look closer and there's the clue and that's where we should be going. What is it about the, how do, how are business people, so how are entrepreneurs supposed to look at their data and feedback? I mean, I don't know if I did anything that, that um, extravagant, but what I did, I remember just getting out an A4 sheet of paper and just writing down, creating a timeline and going, like, what were the events that happened on my mm. timeline here from mm. the time that I said there's a there's a problem that needs to be solved in a beast or in, in type of beast, right the way through to where I am now. And I just wrote it down without any judgment on it. And then I started to look at it and, and try and understand why I made the decision I made at the time so I could understand my own thinking. And it's, and it's mm. funny because recently I've been hearing a lot of people about journaling and and all that kind of stuff and it's like it's kind of hitting a nerve a little bit with me because i'm thinking i probably need to at some stage go back to journaling. Yeah. 
you know, I haven't really had time, but a part of me feels that it's, it's a very valuable process. And like, even if I could just commit to maybe half a page a day, just to reflect, I think there's a lot of value in that because you need to understand how you think, yeah. um, to understand why you made the decision you made. So I suppose when I say data, that's kind of what I mean by data. Yeah. And mm. The other side of it was the, 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 the slap of reality that literally I had an inbox of like, you know, emails which i had sent again and again and again and heard nothing back and it was like yeah. well what more data do you need you know it's like hmm. asking someone on a date and it's like they haven't replied to your third text message it's like they're not in yeah. <laughs> you know and it's like then you're a bit like you know are you stupid or yeah. you know? so hmm. i think that was kind of it and back to your question about like failure success failure it's like that's probably the one thing that i think as medics it's just been drilled into us that there is a black and white yeah. that mm. you either succeed pass you pass your test or you fail your test and there's like no in between to that and i think what i've learned in business and i think i've only learned it because i spent time with like people in business is they just see it more as learning and yeah. i think if i think i think what makes something the difference between a failure and a learning is the ability to move forward mm. so if you yeah. fail and you stop you failed. If you fail yeah. and you move forward, you've learned, and you mm. have to bring that learning to the next step. Um, but but I also think, like, let's be real as well. Like, you know, you have to take into account your your own life circumstances and situations. And it's like, if you find yourself in a position where you have a couple of dependents, some mm. member gets sick, um, you know, go easy on yourself. Stop stop mm. thinking of yourself as a failure because you know, you're, you're not pushing on, you know, because it's like you're a human at the end of it. And that's so easy to forget. It's so easy to think of yourself as this like productive machine that just yeah. keeps yeah. going and pushing on. And Just touching on the point is we live in a world where productivity, there's like a million apps and you need to be up at 5 a.m., which I disagree with. I hate yeah. that club. Like, <laughs> you know, and you need to be able to do it all. You know, have a wife and kids, a big house, have a startup, have a YouTube channel, be churning out content every other day and then do a, a, a unicorn exit, right? And and there are people doing it, right? The, the sad reality, there are people doing it. And then there are people that I know. There's also people getting put in jail for that shit. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And, I, and, and I'm glad you said that, Harriet, because there are a lot of listeners listening to this podcast thinking, I wish I could do what Harriet is doing, except you are right. They do have a family dependence to look after. They maybe don't have the luxury that both me and you have where they can go out and take a risk and gamble and do something yeah. that, you know, is inspiring. And I think, you know, it, it, it's not the end of the world. It's essentially. not. Like, and we're all on a different journey. And like, and that is not a cliche. I mean that genuinely. It's like the strategy that I took to get here, I wouldn't advocate for. Like I could have done things way more strategically. Like I could have maybe joined Bain and McKinsey <laughs> and got paid while I learned. Yeah. You know what I mean? And instead, I was locoming part-time, paying for my own master's. I moved back home for like a year or two as well, as a, like a 28-year-old woman. You know, it was like, I didn't necessarily, I, I don't necessarily think I made the right decisions, but mm. they were my decisions. And I, yeah. I I didn't think there was an alternative at the time, but there probably was. Um, You know, so I think people need to, think about what they can do within their capabilities at the time no. and also like 
I think I feel younger now as a 32 year old than I felt when I was 25. I don't know how old you guys are. I've had the feeling where we're, we're not, let's say we're the same age bracket. <laughs> so so I, do, I do feel that the, the wear and tear of yeah, life. The fact, the fact I thought you might be younger is like, that's a good thing. You're not, you're not, you're not that yeah, right. No, no. But, um, it's like, you know, I think, I think that, yeah, like you get a different concept on time as you get older you start to think actually maybe there's more time than I thought like maybe mm. maybe I don't have to have it all sorted out at the age of 35 like but do, do you know what I think it is I think conventional careers or traditional careers make you see life as this timeline milestones whereas when you embark on the journey of entrepreneurship and it's what if I don't know what's waiting for me on the other side. It becomes this, in a way, infinite timeline and you, you, you care less about, obviously everyone cares about the hours and the days and your age and stuff, but I feel there's a bit more room to breathe and it feels a bit counterintuitive. But do you know what I mean? You feel a bit more fulfilled and you're like, do you know what, I'm going to stick it out because of X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it, it, it definitely does feel like that now, for sure. Yeah. So moving on and kind of, hearing a bit more about your journey up into kind of building BMI. Tell us what it actually is, what it does for the listeners that don't know too much about it. And what is your goal? What are you trying to achieve? So Beyond BMI is a medically led, digitally delivered obesity virtual clinic. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to increase access to world-class obesity care and deliver sustainable medical outcomes. Um, so it's a 12 month program. Mm. And the reason why it's a 12 month program is because it, um, it, it's based on the STEP trials, which is the, the trials that were done around new GLP-1s, semaglutide. And yeah. they were able to show a 15 to 20% weight loss over a 68 week period. Oh, wow. When it was combined with lifestyle intervention, so that would be dietary and behavioral intervention. And we have, you know, I, I, it's funny because early on I had people saying to me, why don't you just go e-commerce on this? Why don't you just set up something and sell these drugs online mm. and, you know, give people access to them. And, you know, there's a lot of demand and you're going to make lots of money and blah, 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 blah. And I just remember thinking that is not what I'm about. It's not what I'm about as a doctor. And it's certainly not what I, I, I want to do as a business. It's, you know, I feel that, you, and that's probably where being a doctor helps. You kind of do have an ethical comp compass and you think yeah. to yourself, what's actually the right thing to do? And the right thing to do is to give people access to real care, proper follow-up, and be medically driven with outcomes. And, you know, are we there yet? No, we're early days, but is that the vision, the mission, the values? Yes. Um, and, and, and that's that's, you know, I think that's probably where being a doctor has helped lead a business because yeah you're a lot quicker to consider the medical implications of what you're doing and i think a lot of that was another thing actually is a lot of i saw a lot of tech companies or health tech companies starting up and i'd always look and see who's the ceo and yeah and so many times i never saw medical representation up there and i thought what the hell like what are we all doing as a group like you yes, know it's... where are the nurses where are the doctors where are the dietitians like let's get in there and and, and start representing ourselves yeah, it's crazy. Like um, the other day, I had the same feeling of like, there's so many incredible health tech companies out there. Let me look at the founders. And you're right, the vast majority are non-clinical founders. They have no experience at all. Or 
like we say, close to the problem. And I'm sure as they scale and grow, they rapidly bring on people. But then the question that occurred to me is, why are we as clinicians not doing what you're doing, going out and building solutions of our own, building platforms of our own, you know, and yet, you know, we complain that the hospital just implemented the software and didn't get the opinions of doctors who use on a day-to-day basis. Like I found it mind-boggling actually. Yeah, and you know what I I did too, Abdul. Like I, I it, it shocked me, and then and then I started to really try and you know go back to you know ethnographic research, go back to the kind of root cause. Like why? There's obviously a reason, mm. and it's like I think there's two things that I've come to the conclusion anyway. One is obviously character traits and breeding. It's like mm. when you've been in an environment where you're bred to be risk averse, don't yeah. expect someone to wake up in the morning and take a risk. Like, it's just not in their nature. I want to talk a little bit about Beyond BMI, right? About your users and the first bit of feedback that you've gotten. What's been the response like? Because obesity is a little bit like, I was speaking to a patient the other day and diabetes, he just went, oh, it's just a bit of sugar in your blood. Diabetes has so many consequences as obesity does. Because when I was listing off how we can get on top of this sort of lifestyle factors, I sort of said, you also need to think about getting more active, losing a bit of weight, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but those two things, diabetes and the general weight, obesity, it's such a common thing and people don't understand the complications of it. What's been the response like from your users? Yeah, yeah again, I'm, I'm going to bring it back to pain points because that's mm-hmm. where it all it starts and ends. It's like, what are the pain points that people are experiencing? So like you said, with diabetes, it's like, it's just a bit of sugar in my blood. If I don't feel pain, if it's not hurting my back, if I'm not losing a leg, if I'm not, you know, mm. then all it is is a bit of sugar in my blood. So yeah, it's very hard to create a sense of urgency. It's very hard to create a sense of, you know, I need to do something about this. Whereas what I would say is different between diabetes and obesity is that obesity, there are a lot of pain points. For example, lower back and knee pain, mm. um, fertility issues, um, like worsens menopausal symptoms. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it's, people are aware that it's associated with heart disease, although I don't know if that's even the main driver still, I think, and, and again, probably the main one I haven't really talked about is the societal view. Yeah. So people, you wear obesity. Tell me how many conditions do you wear on your body? You don't wear diabetes, you know, you don't wear erectile dysfunction, you know, so it just doesn't feel like a big enough problem. Mm. Whereas, uh, and I think again, that's why probably obesity is becoming much more, you know, topical and people are willing to do something about it. Yeah. Back to your point on, on patients is probably about, I think obesity now has the most number of, of associated complications than any other medical disease. So it has over 220 medical complications associated with it. Yeah, I think it is. I think I don't know if it's true. I was reading it's like it's like worse than smoking and all of those things that you would have thought were, were super damaging to health. Just going back to your last point, Harriet, and I remember you shared that on, on LinkedIn was, and I'm glad you you're you're not just medicalizing obesity. You're also doing the coaching and and, and the mindfulness with it. Is I think you spoke to someone and they said, you know, they feel they were a bit overweight and they were less professional in their day to day job, right mm. and. I think it just needs not just a pill to solve it, but just that mindset, that coaching, just to go through that. And I think with a problem like obesity, you need this holistic approach. Um, and tell us how that response has been. Are you meeting people? Are people just like, you know, they're grabbing the pills and want instant solutions? Or are you able to kind of 
share that it's, it's a long process. There's more to it rather than just taking a, a, a medication. Yeah, definitely. Like I, I would say the vast majority of people actually are quite aware that they don't, they don't, they don't want, they don't like the idea of having to stay on a medication long-term, first of all. Now, obesity is no different as a chronic disease to um, type 2 diabetes, to COPD, to asthma. You know, you would never think, oh, I'll stop my albutamol in three months' time when I stopped wheezing. You know what I mean? You would never do that. But yet obesity is almost looked at as like, oh, once I lose weight, then I stop my treatment. But once you stop a diet, once you stop ex once you stop anything, whatever it is that you were treating is going to come back. So first of all, there's a piece of uh, around managing expectations. It's like you need to teach people about the biology and about the science of obesity that this is not something that is a one hit wonder that you, you got to commit to this in the same way as you commit to any part of your health. Um, so, but I would say a lot of people do understand that. And especially because what you have to understand about obesity is people are suffering with this or some people are suffering with it anyway, for a long enough period of time that they've tried it all. They've seen it all, you know, they've had, the fad diets, they've stood on the weighing scales in front of everybody at a commercial weight loss program. They've been there, done that, have the scars to show it. And now they want something different. They want something that's going to be sustainable, long-term, isn't snake oil. Um, and I think that creates more of a commitment, to be honest. With also this whole um, societal change, would you say society is going towards this sort of more longer-term approach now is that what they're preferring now um because it seems like before it was you know one pill fixes the job hopefully and now people are becoming more health conscious and saying you know what like mental health for example a lot of people are investing in it saying you know what this is about the next 20 years it's not about just going on a holiday now and i'll be happy for the rest of my life um do you think people are preferring that and that's where society is going to is moving towards um i i'd like to think so but i think you're all you're going to have like where humans are involved is going to be human behavior and human nature. Mm. And that is, we all like instant gratification. You know, we're all yeah. the victims of the dopamine hits. So anything mm. that kind of does that for us is we naturally gravitate towards. And I think, Absolutely. you know, people talk about this obesogenic environment and, and the obesogenic environment is just tapping into all of our subconscious processes. Like, and by that, I mean, for example, processed foods they target the processed foods target all of our innate desire to seek out high calorie foods because there was times mm. in our lives or our genetic lives if you want to call it that where there wasn't enough food where we lived through famines and actually the type of people who were able to seek out and find that high caloric food survived and the people who couldn't died so we're pre-genetically um driven towards mm. certain behaviors um, yeah. So I don't think that's going to change. I mean, I don't think that's yeah. going to change. What, what, what? And that's where the medications are so effective because the medications are not claiming to help you consciously. They're not claiming to help you make better food choices. They're not claiming to help you, you know, willpower your way out of weight loss. They actually yeah. target the subconscious parts of your brain. So they target the hypothalamus, which is the same part of your brain that controls your um blood pressure the same part of your brain that controls your temperature and as you mm. and i are having a chat today like you're not consciously going i'm i'm 37.5 degrees and i'm going to stay there it's like your body's doing that 
And yeah, yeah. that's that's medications are so effective. And the reason I suppose then why we feel that we need to pair that with the health coaches and with the nutritionists, sorry, dietitians and with you know, even psychology is that the medications will help you lose weight, but they won't help you make better food choices and they won't help you make better lifestyle choices. And that's where you need the team. That's where you need that support because, you know, it's not just about long life. It's about quality of life and quality of life comes from better sleep, better relationships, you know, healthier foods. And that's true for anybody, whether you're suffering with obesity or not. Absolutely. So I, I, I just don't don't see this as possible without the team. And I, I love the team. I love the team so much because I think, like, you know, it all brings such different skill sets. You know, you've got doctors, you've got dietitians, you've got health coach. They're all bringing a different mm. dynamic. And there's no dogmatism. We're not telling people they have to do a specific diet. We're not telling them they have to be vegan this week and keto next week. And, you know, yeah. it's, it, it's very doable within people's lifestyle. And, again, comes back to that same thing. We're all living different lives. We're all experiencing different things. We've got different life events happening to us at any one time. So let's not be dogmatic mm. with people and tell them they have to stick to a certain way of, of doing things. Absolutely. Mm. I think I think what you're doing with Beyond BMI is incredible. It's, it's a big problem. And I don't think anyone can solve it. You need a certain type of individual to solve it. And... Um, just hearing your story, hearing your, your passion and kind of the mindset and, and your graph, you seem like an individual that can go in and solve that problem. And I know it's not an easy problem. I know it's not sunshine and roses, but I feel there are certain things you need the right people to solve it, right? You need the Bill Gates for Microsoft. And, and I think you do need Harriet for, for BMI and obesity. Oh, shut um, up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but, but no, genuinely, um, because there's there's a there's this innate drive that we can see this this deep motivation kind of not giving up really trying to make a difference what has kind of the the the, the cost of it all been in the sense of family mm. you know i'm going to go to the question relationships mm. downtime your own mental health and well-being um mm. what sacrifices were made Lot, lots and there still are lots like i you know um, I don't own my own home. Um, I've, I've just become a business owner. So that means I can't get a mortgage for another two years. Um, lots, you know, yeah. I, I don't probably spend enough time with my partner. Mm. Um, very lucky though. I've got a really supportive partner. Um, you know, f- feeling like you're never excelling in any one area. You know, I need to spend more time with my family. I need to spend mm. more time with my friends. I need to spend more time on myself. You know, I, I don't ever feel like I'm excelling in any one area. Yeah. But I think I've come to terms with that a little bit as well. Like, mm. you know, again, it comes back to this. I can't help but just think of women's magazines and just the image of like Beyonce or, you know, JLo. And it's like some headline of like, you can have it all. And it's like, what a damaging heading. Like, you can't have it all. It's like life is a series mm. of compromises and Absolutely. you're constantly, you know, making trade-offs and that's life. And you know what? Like more pain comes from not accepting the reality of life than it comes than comes from anything else. You know, you've mm. got to accept that you can't have it all. And once you kind of do, you kind of go, okay, 
now I've accepted this, but it's not kind of the tenets of like meditation or mindfulness is kind of acceptance is the first step. Yeah. So I don't know if that sounds super depressing, but it's like, I kind of accept that like my social life probably could be better and yeah. my family life probably could be better, but like, you know, I don't know if I'd be happy and everyone around me seems to keep saying to me, they don't think I'd be happy if I wasn't doing it. So I don't know. I don't no, know. I think, I think you're right. And um, I'm loving this conversation so far because it's real genuine advice. And what I've realized though, my theory is when you don't get to do the stuff that keeps you fulfilled, that keeps you happy and motivated, it then takes a negative toll on your family and relationships. So you may kind of suppress the feeling of entrepreneurship, suppress the feeling of building a company like Beyond BMI in the sense that you're going to spend more time with your friends and family, but then you realize you're not fulfilled, you're not enjoying it, and you're just miserable to be around. Whereas the little moments you do spend your family, you're buzzing and enjoy it and you have that more quality time. Uh, that's my theory. I don't know if I'm trying to rationalize it because we're in a similar boat to you, but yeah. that's my theory. You know, and I, but, but I, I do think, you know, that, like, do be careful of your relationships yeah. and, and do be careful of, of things like that because, you know, business doesn't keep you warm at night, as they say. Like, it doesn't, yeah. you know, and... and it keeps us up, if anything. <laughs> you do have to have those other relationships around you. I think... I think small talk has always been a bit annoying to me or a bit like trivial. So I knew I didn't want to be in those situations where I was just talking about stupid shit all the time. Mm. Or like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wanted to have real conversations with real people talking about, like, I, I just, I could, even like my chairman, like I could talk to him for hours because I just love his story. I love what he's done. He like talk about Grafter, like, you know, what he's achieved is, is incredible. And it's like really cool to be around people like that. Yeah. And, yeah. They motivate you and they, and they do all sorts so um yeah i think i think but but ultimately you know comes back to the juggling do do keep your relationships going and, and don't compromise them and also know i think knowing that like <sighs> there is always more opportunity than you probably think like mm. and not everything has to be done today like i i yeah. always sense of impatience and i still do like especially with the business i want things done now i want it done yesterday yeah but but some things, you know, if you're growing a business, it's like, God knows what kind of businessmen you guys are going to be in like five, ten years time. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. just, just don't know. Like, I'm saying, yeah. I don't know if Beyond BMI is going to be a success. I hope it will, but it might not be. And, mm. you know, then you go again. Well, maybe, I, I don't know whether, I don't know. Who knows? I've but, got another theory for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like, everybody loves the Mark Zuckerberg story. You know, the kid yeah. out of college, like, not so much the Tarana story, because if I get compared to that one more bloody time, but <laughs> it's like nobody, everyone loves those bloody stories, don't they? And it's yeah. like, actually, when you look at the stats, the people who make the best entrepreneurs are usually kind of 40, you know, they've yeah, had experience, they've done it all. But I, I think when I went into it, I didn't think of it like that. I thought of it as like, shit, I'm on a timeline. I need to get this done. I need to achieve X by, because I was always had that mentality with, with medicine. I need to get this grade by this time. So I yeah. can do this planning out my future 10 years in advance, like mm. you do in medicine. I'm going to be a consultant by this age. You know, that's how we're taught to think. Yeah. And I kind of wish I'd, I didn't, hadn't put myself under that amount of pressure. Um, yeah. Because it, 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 it's not good. It's not good for your mental health and it's just wrong as well. Like it's not the right way to live your life. No. But if you live and you learn, 
yeah, we touched on so many different things, so many pieces of information that people, like our listeners, do need to, to listen. Um, the last piece of, the last question, I promise, is kind of leadership, what it means to be a leader, you know, when you're kind of rallying the troops, when you're trying to, as a co-founder, when you're trying to get people on board, buying into a mission, buying into what you're doing. Because um, for some people, it is just a job, right? The company gets big enough where it just is just another job for them, right? Not everyone, the one thing I've learned is not everyone is as bought into the mission as you are or the co-founders, right? How do you deal with that and what makes a good leader? I think what makes a good leader is somebody who seeks to understand the problems that the people around them are facing. They mm. don't they don't just bark orders without actually understanding the problem. Um, so listening to your team, I think leadership is also, you know, I, I, you hear about flattened hierarchies and hierarchies and all these different yeah. things. Like ultimately there is a decision maker. And I think you do have to build that into your, in, in, into your mindset. Like not, a, you know, we're not living in communism where everybody gets to, you know, <laughs> everyone, like ultimately someone has to make a decision, but I think where possible, you have to make people feel responsible for certain areas because if they don't, yeah, then there's no upside and there's no downside. And when mm. people feel responsible, they behave differently. So, you know, I like to allocate responsibility. I like to delegate. I like people to, um, you know, feel that they own a certain area because I think that's good for them and it's good for me. Um, I think leadership is also looking at the culture you're building in the team. Like I try where possible within reason to be as honest and open as I, as I can about like, if I'm struggling with something, if I'm finding something hard, if I know that my team members are struggling, I, I'll mm. empathize with it and say, what can I do to help? So like, for example, we had, you know, one of our health coaches is working her backside off at the moment and she's incredible. So lucky mm. to have her, but she is really working hard. And I just was like, what can I actually do to help her? And there's the kind of, I can jump in and help her as much as I can, which I try. So I took on some of mm. her calls, but also there's the strategic parts. Like, well, strategically, what can I do? Well, I can get her another health coach. I can go out there and hire. So yeah. that's what I did. And I think, I, I suppose to me, that's probably leadership. Um, yeah, yeah. I think Amazing. I think that's a great example, and I think leadership isn't just one thing; it's a variety of things that come together, and there's a time and place for it. Um, and I think you, as an individual, your own personal experiences and journey, your drive is a testament to what Beyond BMI has achieved so far with the raise, with the amount of people you're helping, um, and we know you do incredibly well. Um, oh, so. It's a massive pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time out for kind of sharing it. And I hope that our listeners understand who you are a bit more and why you're on this journey. And, you know, we're, we're behind you as well now. Ah, oh, cheers, guys.